2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15 through chapter 4 and 6. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open, open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is God's word. So we are um, moving through Second Corinthians. Move this out of the way. And... This morning we need to step back. These are this this passage that Paul is talking about is um, what they call indicative. They're statements of fact that Paul is trying to write to this church and teach them something. It's we're used to this is what we should do in response. Do this, don't do this. But this is a passage we need to dig into a little bit to understand this whole idea of being veiled and unveiled and all that. So um, I I think it's rich, and I trust and pray that it will be um, you know real blessing to you. But we're going to have to dig into the Old Testament a little bit. So put your finger in Exodus 34 uh, as well, because we're going to be flipping back and forth between Exodus 34 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So what we've been seeing is Paul has written to this church to, to defend the accusations of people who don't like him and people who think he's uh, not a godly enough guy because he's been suffering so much, and he's refuted that and said suffering is a part of the gospel. As a matter of fact, it releases the power of the gospel through my suffering. Uh, he's also, last week we talked about the accusation that he was unqualified to be an apostle. What makes you, you know, God's gift to, you know, the Corinthian church. And he says, well, because I was God's gift to the Corinthian church. Jesus himself appointed me, and I'm qualified to minister because I was called to do this. And then he introduces this concept of, I'm a minister of the new covenant. Why is that important? Because Paul is the minister to the Gentiles. Under the old covenant, it was with who? Who's the old covenant with? The Jews, right? And so for Paul to minister to all people, then he says, I'm a minister of the new covenant. So I'm qualified because God himself gave me this task and qualified me to do this. And then he takes this little diversion that we talk about as he talks about the new covenant and what it is. So one thing that's always, I don't know if it's confused me, but it's always been a little bit hard for me to reconcile is how the Bible and Paul look at the law versus the way sometimes like the Psalms and other things write about the law. 
It was sort of like when I first heard love songs in the 1960s and 70s, and half the songs would say, man, being in love is just the best thing ever. And the other half of the songs would say, being in love makes me want to kill myself. It's the worst thing ever. You know, there's those kind of angst, those teenage angst songs of, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just a teenager in love, and I'm just, it's terrible, it's great, it's terrible, it's great. And sometimes I feel like when we deal with the law, it's sort of like that. You have Paul saying something like we see today. The law the is the ministry of death carved in stones, right? And then you have something like uh, the psalmist in Psalm 19 saying, Lord, I love your law. It's perfect. It's sweeter than the honeycomb. It's beautiful. It's great. And then Paul says, man, the law is just, you know, terrible. Is it great or is it terrible? And so this passage is going to help us to kind of reconcile and understand this a little bit. So, uh, in verse uh, 12, he says, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, he says, We have a hope in which we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Woo! Got to unpack that a little bit. That, I'm like, I, I read that like, what? I got no idea what that actually means. All right, so let's let's see. The Old Covenant was written on what? Stones, all right? The Ten Commandments were. Now, there's more than the Ten Commandments in the Old Covenant. But the idea is the Old Covenant is is written in stone, and you are to do what with it? Look at it, memorize it, internalize it, and obey it, right? That was... So here are the rules. Obey the rules, right? It's actually very comforting. But it's it's in a piece of stone, and it doesn't move. And as we we mentioned last week, the the problem is is that we don't have the power to obey. That's the real issue. And the law itself, and we'll just take the Ten Commandments as sort of a, a metaphor for the whole law. It's more than just the Ten Commandments. Jesus reveals to us in the Sermon on the Mount that that's not the whole deal, is it? So if you look at Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, you, you have more than just, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not. Jesus gives a, a fuller picture. So, when Bob, 2015, Bob Klima did a great job preaching on this and, and the law and the heart of God. And so I've, I've called it the Klima line. And if you weren't here, we're going to put it up here because the Klima line, like the Mendoza line, if you know baseball, is very important to understand. I think this is a great picture and you, you, we need to get this. The law down at the bottom there, if you put a behavior line on the left and do not murder is one of the Ten Commandments, right? But is that God's ultimate call on his people? Do not murder. Praise God, I've never murdered anyone. Are you going to heaven because you haven't murdered anyone? Well, that's a pretty low bar, actually, isn't it? Right? It's not the worst. As Bob put, you you can have terrible brutality and torture. People do worse than murdering. People left to their own devices. We live in a world where the darkness is growing, where we sometimes people go to even farther extremes over there. But that to live together in any kind of way that would be uh, make sense, we, we need to say, well, here's a structure. Don't murder one another. But Jesus comes on the scene and says, look, you haven't understood. 
because God's, it's not just murdering, it's don't call your brother stupid. No insults or anger. You can actually love your neighbor. Not just not murder them. And as a matter of fact, the more you look over to God himself from these interchanges that are coming, God has this unconditional love for us that we'll never achieve 100% of, but we can actually grow to be more like God. And then he goes through, what does he go through? The Example after example with this same line on it. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Well, guys, i got news for you. If you're thinking, well, I've been having a successful marriage. I've never committed adultery. Praise God. Well, yeah, it's good, but you're setting the bar a little low for a successful marriage if you think not committing adultery. Now, is there worse things? Yeah. But did God call us to something better? He says, you don't even want to lust after a woman in your heart. Purity of motive and heart is like God himself. Complete fidelity and faithfulness of heart is the goal, not just not committing adultery. But the law gives us a parameter because, remember, the people around them where they lived we're committing all sorts of atrocities, killing children and polygamy to the extent. And, and you just say, okay, so he draws a line and says, don't be like the people around you. Here's the law to give you some structure to separate you. But it became in stone. And so it became the rule that if I just did this, I'm obedient to the law. I look in the stone and I say, oh, I've been obedient. I give a tithe. As a matter of fact, I tithe even my herbs. I, I, I can read all these laws and all the extrapolations of those laws. And this is what it says and this is what I've done, so I'm righteous. And Paul comes on the scene and he's trying to speak both to Jews but also to Gentiles who don't have a law. And he says, the stones of the law were meant for your conformation, to conform you to the standards of a society and living together in a way that you could at least exist together and have the possibility of reflecting me, but they were never meant to be the goal. And success in the law is rote memorization, not just of the words, but of the rules, obedience to those rules outwardly by sheer willpower if you could, and most people can't because maybe you can't not, you know, you can, I don't commit adultery, I don't murder, but your heart can't be changed to be unconditionally loving, to be completely, your mind with no uh, lust. That's beyond, the, the standard that Jesus says is beyond human willpower. So Paul steps up and says, look, it's a loser with the old covenant both ways because if you succeed, you become self-righteous like the Pharisees. Look at me, like the man praying. Look at me, God. I've done everything you've asked. Or condemnation and guilt if you're unsuccessful. Those are your two, those are the two things. Because it's self-driven bondage. Follow me? Okay, so this is the old covenant. And then what's your end goal? You compel others to obey the law as you have done. So Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you're going to create people who are twice the sons of hell as you are yourself, right? Because you're just teaching them to do exactly what 
you've been taught to do, which is death. Because stones bring death, but the law itself is good. You see this picture, the law itself isn't evil. It's just not complete. It's not the it's not everything that God wanted because there's not a heart change. All right. So Paul says the new covenant, and again we go back to Jeremiah 31. You can turn to it if you want to, but we turned we looked at it last week. We just introduced this where the new covenant Jeremiah prophesies and says in Jeremiah 31 uh 3131, Behold, the days are coming where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. That day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, broke the stones, but they also broke the law and they did what was evil. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it where? On their hearts, not on the stones. So this is the beginning of this new covenant. So Paul says, look, the new covenant, not written on stones, it's written on hearts. It's internalized within you, not for your obedience to do the outward. doesn't mean you don't have to do the law. And this is where Paul's argument through Romans is. He says, look, you think, well, now I don't have to do the law. No, he says, you can go far beyond the law. You don't have to just not murder and just not commit adultery and just tithe. You can actually spend your whole, you, you can, your heart can be mine, can be God's. And you can know the Lord because you now have the power to obey because you have the Holy Spirit. That was not released because, John 8, Jesus hadn't come and, and, and died for us. So the Holy Spirit inside of people hadn't been released yet. He sat on the prophets and he sat on the priests and the kings sometimes for, for missions and things they wanted to accomplish, but it wasn't generally available to the people of Israel. Because, well, and then that goes into the whole thing of Jesus dying and releasing the Holy Spirit. But, but for, for our scripture this morning, the power to obey the Holy Spirit, not just his evidence of his gifts that were given, but in the ability of, to transform, not conform. Get the difference? We don't just have to say, well, I'm going to do what it says on the page. We now are actually, our hearts become transformed to desire the will of God. Men and women, don't we do not desire the will of God out of the womb, right? You know, you don't have to teach your children to be selfish, right? Mine, you don't have to teach them that word, right? We come out desiring our own way and to be our own gods, but the Holy Spirit can transform us because the Spirit gives us the ability to have a relationship with God. There's no relationship in the Old Covenant. It's obedience. It's raw human obedience. The stones, you conform. The Spirit, New Covenant relationship, you be transformed. What is success in this. If success is outward obedience, doing those things, now let's look at the veils. We got that kind of as background. So let's look at the scripture. Um, 
So if you've got your Bible, turn to Exodus 34 because Paul references this. Moses gets so angry about the children of Israel building an idol while he was gone that he smashes the stone tablets of the law and just says these people are stiff-necked, rebellious, disobedient, so he smashes them. God takes him back up, puts him in his presence, and allows, um, makes, makes, says, I'm going to make a covenant with these people. And Moses spends 40 days fasting on the mountaintop, receiving a second set of tablets of the Ten Commandments in stone. And when he comes down from the mountain in Exodus 34, he's just glowing, having been in the presence of God. So I'm going to pick up with, uh, Exodus 34:29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron, and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would then see the face of Moses, and the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Okay, so you get what's happening. Moses goes, he deals with God, and his face begins to shine, reflecting this is the old covenant. God speaks words to him like the Ten Commandments that he then reveals. He comes down and his face is somehow like one of those glow-in-the-dark frisbees and you put it up to the light and it somehow absorbs the light of God. It was like that. He becomes transformed in physical appearance and so he then speaks to the people, tells them what God has said. They're afraid. They don't want to deal with God. And then... As the light is beginning to, as he's beginning to normalize, what he just, for whatever period of time, he walks around with this thick veil covering his face. Now, what do you make of that? I mean, if you're just, I don't know how long Moses would do this, but the question is, why would he do this? This is really important. Because it's easy for us to think, well, it just freaked out the people. So, of course, he didn't want to freak the people out. I don't think so. I don't think Moses really cared about freaking the people out. Okay? Why would he throw this over his face when the glow of God, Moses with unveiled face, a friend of God in the sense of being in his, in his very presence in the tent, well, the people of Israel did not want relationship with God. We have found that out. When they first come down from the mountain, what do the people say? Don't let God speak to us, Moses. You tell us what God says. If you want the reference on that, I wrote it down, but um, it's Exodus 20, verse 19. 
don't have the Lord speak to us. And their attitude and posture did not change. They were always called a stiff-necked, hardened people toward the things of God. Now, they had their moments, and there were some individuals who were not, but as a people, and so they were condemned by seeing the presence of God reflected in the face of Moses. And it made it impossible for Moses to deal with them because they stood in death because they knew they were not following the Lord. And here they were in the presence of a man who was reflecting the presence of God and they were condemned. It was death to them. So now we go back to 2 Corinthians 3. And here's what it says. Verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses. Here's why that makes sense to me now. Now, I'm going to say, maybe I'm wrong in this. Some of the commentators I've read agree with this, and some go off in other directions. So I'm not saying this is, you know, no other interpretation. But Moses, a man of God, was not very bold because rather than presenting the picture of the presence of God and just letting the chips fall where they may and shining the presence of God and, and, and condemning them in a sense because they didn't want to see it, he veiled his face in order to make whatever relationship was possible so that until it faded away. And Paul says, we're not to be like that. We are not to, to veil ourselves. Now he changes the metaphor and he says this. After he says Moses would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. The outcome or, or that which was being accomplished was God's word was being presented to them and they did not want to hear or obey. And so as it faded away and he wasn't in the presence anymore, it says their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So that as we look at righteousness and righteous living, he says now this veil lies over the heart of people because there's one way for the veil now to be taken away. He says it's through Jesus Christ is that if you want to understand, it all looks like legalism without Jesus. It all looks like rules. And people say, well, don't do this behavior. Don't do that behavior. And people say, rules, it's just rules. Their heart is veiled. They don't see the freedom of obeying Christ because they're blind. And, and Paul says very clearly that this is a scheme of the devil. He says, to this day, whenever Moses is read, that is the law, a veil lies over their hearts. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In verse chapter 4, verse 3, he says that the gospel is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So, this concept, I, you know, I, I realize this is more teaching than like preaching in a sense, but this is so, 
so important. Verse chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And the Lord there, don't read that as Jesus. Read that as Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh. The, that's the context of this because he's saying the God is Spirit, which is something we can relate to, Spirit to Spirit. Not just stones. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, verse 18, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What's glory? It's hard to define, actually. I mean, you, there's a lot of different ways you could define it. But let's just say it's that beautiful perfection. It's being in the presence. When you see someone's glory as a human, human spirit, they may not look like anything. They may not be physically attractive to us or have uh, the outward appearance, but that their spirit right, is so beautiful. And again, if we look back at that Bekelema line and you look at the transformational beauty of God when we looked at that far corner and saw the most beautiful picture of a God who loves unconditionally. He says, if you want to be transformed, behold your God. Stare intently. What does it mean to, to behold His glory? To look at His beauty. Guys, it's a mystery with these human eyes to tell you, I can't tell you seven steps to how to behold the glory of God. What I can tell you is, is that this book gives us this portrait. It's in some ways two-dimensional, this portrait. And out of this book steps a three-dimensional portrait of Jesus Christ. And we got, we get to behold His face in a sense. Look at John chapter 1, verse 14. As John, who physically saw the three-dimensional picture of Christ, says this, the Word the Word became flesh. 2D became 3D. The ultimate printer, 3D printer. He steps out as a baby and he says, it, he dwelt among us. And what did he say? We have seen his glory. We beheld his beauty. This is a rough fisherman. This isn't some poet. This is a man who was completely transformed by beholding the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've seen His glory. Glory as of what? The principles that He taught us? The law that He made so clear to us? No. We saw His glory as of the Son of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Now we go back to 2 Corinthians 3. Full of grace and truth. And Paul says this, I'm not like Moses. Moses lost his boldness and threw a veil over the presence of God. And Paul says, I'm not going to do that. He says, for me, I'm going to minister God's Word. Chapter 4, verse 1. I'm not going to lose heart, 
even though I'm stoned and uh, you know persecuted and all these things, I'm not going to present the word in some disgraceful, underhanded ways. Clearly there were other ministers who were maybe taking money to preach in ways that were not appropriate. He says we refused to practice cunning, to tamper with God's word. He wasn't going to water down the truth in any way. He says, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, what you see with us is what you get. And if our gospel is veiled, it's not that he's throwing a veil over his face, it's that the devil has thrown a veil over those who don't believe. So do you want to pray for people in your family, your friends who don't believe? First prayer is this, Lord, would you draw them to Jesus and have them take the veil away? Because how does the veil get put away? When someone turns to Christ, chapter 3, the veil is torn away. People are not going to believe by our clever arguments. They won't. It's not that we do, we, sh- we should be able to present the gospel in an articulate and good way. It's not that it's good to just say, well, I don't know why I believe. But the veil has to be torn away. And we are to have those shining faces having been transformed because we behold the beauty of Jesus. And we don't see him in his human form because he was resurrected But that's what the Holy Spirit is for. It's Jesus' Spirit. And we get to live in His presence and reflect His glory. And then there are people for whom that message is going to be very difficult, like the Israelites who say, I don't want that. And Paul says that's fine. It's not that he wrestles people to the ground and, you know, God forbid, in our day, to proselytize is is like the biggest sin in the world. To, to sort of present the gospel to people. And I think somehow people think we're going to arm wrestle them to the ground and brand them with C on their butt, and they'll say, oh, well, now you're a Christian. Oh, I didn't want to be, but you proselytize me. <laughs> Let me just tell you something. If you lose 50 pounds in a diet and someone says, you look great, what did you do? And you say, well, all diets are the same, baby. Just do the chips and ice cream diet. You know, It's all the same. You are doing them no service. And if your life is a reflection of Jesus Christ and you will not boldly stand up and say, the reason I am where I am today is because Jesus Christ is alive, then shame on you and us. That is the gospel and it is shining boldly, not in a way that's, that's like uh, irritating or whiny, but to profess our faith is our, is, is our privilege and it is love. Again, I know we have to do it with, um, you know, with, with sensitivity and grace, but, but here's what, to finish this, it says this. For what we proclaim, verse 5, chapter 4, is not ourselves. We don't proclaim us, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let Light shine out of darkness, reference to Genesis 1, the power that created all the earth, has shown in our hearts that shining light to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in where? In the face of Jesus Christ. We can't sever the root of truth from the fruit of love, if they see our good works, they should see our good works. 
Let your, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. We should be living our lives in such a good way. But then we can't just take the fruit of love and sever it from the root of truth, which is that is born out of our relationship with Jesus. And believe me, when we share the gospel and we're willing to suffer on behalf of those for whom we're sharing and partner with them in their misery and their lives and say, we love you right where you are. Whatever you're doing, whatever sin you're involved in, whatever bad thing, I don't care. I'm going to walk right with you and suffer with you and, and, and demonstrate the love of Jesus and tell you the truth of Jesus and we'll walk together whether you ever accept it or not. And I won't veil my face. I won't put anything over top because I'm a shining example of the light of Jesus Christ. Hopefully we are. If you're not, don't say you are. Let your light shine. Don't let your word shine. Let your light shine. I think I'm done. All right. Let's be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Be transformed by staring at the face of Christ. Let's be transformed and then He, through His Spirit, will conform us to not only the law, but the Spirit of the law, which is the goodness of God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank You for Your Word. Please take my feeble attempts to make these incredible truths somehow revelatory. I pray that You would make these efforts Lord, that you would quicken to people that speak by the power of your Holy Spirit to this, each individual situation. Lord, if any of my words have not been your truth, let them just fall on deaf ears at this point. But Father, if what I've spoken is in some way the mysteries of God, then open us up to what this means, how we live in the mystery of beholding the glory of God, and, and by that be transformed, not through human effort, not through willpower, but through submission, through death, through dying to ourselves and being raised to newness of life. The same power that's raised Jesus from the dead lives in us and lightens our face. So let us with unveiled face behold the glory of God and be transformed by it. Let's just spend a minute. Holy Spirit, just speak to us, our individual situations. Would you please quicken to us now? your love for us, your truth to us, your grace and your glory.